hopefully you were able to hear that. This movie that's 20 years old now, which makes me feel old because it came out right after I graduated from high school, called The Matrix. And this morning we are exploring a series on being triggered. There we go. So I'm not bowing down to the podium. And the premise of this movie is very simple. It is an apocalyptic movie, and the world is under complete bondage. In fact, people are actually living in a fake reality, and they are asleep. Their body is asleep and controlled by these ro- uh, uh, robot computer overlords. It's an apocalyptic uh, movie. And the idea is of becoming free from that and bringing liberation. And uh, as we've been exploring this idea of triggered, we introduced it two weeks ago, and now we're digging a little deeper into it this Sunday. Um, those lines are so powerful that we are all enslaved and we don't even know it. But there is a way to discover truth. And the Christian narrative, the story of creation, is that indeed we are enslaved, we are in bondage to a way of thinking, a way of looking at reality around us, and that something about that needs to be set free. And yet, God has placed markers, or to use matrix language, there's a splinter in our minds that sort of gnaws at it until we realize that something is not quite right. And this often draws us into the journey of faith. And so while I cannot endorse The Matrix as a movie, (laughs) these lines are powerful. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it, is what Morpheus on the screen said. And you felt it your entire life. There is something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. And he says to Neo, do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. And Morpheus says, do you want to know what it is? So this morning, as we pursue sort of the rotating topical series, we want to talk about this idea of things are not as they should be. And how do we experience the freedom that Christ promises How do we walk into that? And many of us have worked in life and we try harder sometimes to be moral and good. And and yet there are things that just the try harder solution isn't working. So we want to unpack that a little more about the problem of try harder in regarding our triggers and behaviors and attitudes and responses and why it doesn't work. Romans 12 verse 2 says this, coming from scripture, the apostle Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One of our core values here at Pilgrim Church is the idea of transformation. That God desires to bring about life in us and a richness and a fullness beyond what our world promises us, that there is indeed more that we can experience and that there are lives that we are living that are dysfunctional and destructive in our lives. But Jesus has come to expose those lies and those forces of darkness and to bring his truth about in our inner being. And when we become a Christian, that is to change, that shifts. Some of us were raised in the church. Some of us became Christians later. Some of us are curious about Christianity. But what we see the world as is, there is more going on, Jesus reveals to us. 
And that when we just take it as given without asking deeper questions, without probing even our doubts, we are simply living into a lie and trying harder will not liberate us from that lie. And so this morning we explore that more and in two weeks or a few more weeks we'll spend with this as well. But we want to talk about more of this when try harder stops working. Are you okay to go on this journey with me for about 20 minutes? Amen? Yes? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence here today. And we are here today because we realize that there is more. That we've encountered that sort of splinter in our mind, sometimes in art and beauty, sometimes in, in worship, sometimes in the darkness of failure, uh, of, of acting out in ways, and we wonder why. Some of us were going along just fine in life and just everything seemed fine and dandy, but then something awoken us to the fact that something is not right, something is off. And indeed, that is the work and conviction of your Holy Spirit. And so we enter today as people who are truth seekers and beauty seekers and people who want to encounter something beyond. And Lord, I am on a journey with everyone here as well. And we have joined together today in this ancient practice of discerning truth and coming awake through the power of your word and the living word, Jesus. And so, Jesus, do your work in this house by your Holy Spirit, for I can change no one, but your word and your spirit can breathe life and awaken and bring liberty to individuals and even into society. So we lean into you today and say, continue that work, O Holy Spirit. Come and fill this house and move through us that we might uh, see people come alive and flourish in you. That the bondages, the brokenness, the sins that beset be exposed as what they are and that we learn to name them and dethrone them by your power at work. So do your work in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to, say amen. Amen. Again, welcome this morning. My name's uh, Shell or Shelby. I'm the lead pastor here at Pilgrim Church and we are on a journey of renewal if you are new here, welcome. We're glad you're here. Please fill out a Connect card, and as Andre had mentioned, and leave it in the, uh, on the back shelf before you go today. We just have some basic information about the church. We'll send you and anything else uh, you request within reason. I will not come wash your car, but other things for sure uh, about Pilgrim Church. We talked about triggers and began naming this series about being triggered, things that catch us up emotionally, things that cause us to flip into our amygdala, our sort of our primitive animal part of our brain, the fight or flight reflex, uh, the first message. And you can listen to that online. I think that was about two weeks ago. Um, and today, I just want to review that for a second and then dig into this idea of trying harder. One common example of a trigger would be in church life, and we talked about sort of more formal psychological definition of trigger. Uh, if we had a trauma, if we had a, an experience against us, uh, soldiers, post-traumatic stress syndrome, for example, there are triggers, things, uh, experiences after the original event that cause us to sort of enter into a, a fight or flight or a paralysis. There's different emotional responses that we don't necessarily want. We want to be able to name and actually bring some order to those emotions so they don't uh, cause us to fight or flight or be paralyzed in other situations uh, than what the past trauma was. So that's more of the formal. But then informally, there's this idea of just things that set us off emotionally, Oh, that person was really triggered is something we may say, or boy, that's a trigger for me. 
And, and we use it informally now, so the formal language is certainly important to understand, but the, the informal is also this idea of we're responding in ways that are probably not the best in our relationships because something within us needs to be addressed and needs to be uh, uncovered. And so the homework from two weeks ago was to name your triggers. When are those things? What is, what is a situation, a person, a circumstance, a smell, a location that causes you to something like your, your, the old timers would say, make your hair stand up, you know, or like a cat, you know, or it's like arches its back and, rawr, you know, what are those things? And so I hope some of you did that. Uh, that you did your, your Sunday homework from two weeks ago to, to name those things, the situation, the environment, because that's sort of the first step in terms of beginning to take back your personal power and authority uh, in that, is beginning to just identify it, name it. In Scripture, one of the biggest things that we see in terms of brokenness and even sinfulness, um, things that are morally against what God desires for people to flourish, uh, that those, those things, naming them is the first step, admitting that I have a trigger, admitting that I have a sin, admitting that I'm human and broken, and, I, and if I want to see something change, I'm going to have to reach beyond myself in order for that to happen. So sort of naming is important. Uh, just so I know you're awake on this rainy Sunday, would you say the word naming with me? Naming? Naming. Naming things. Like getting it out. Like that's exposure to the light is part of freedom, right? I hope in our home churches, as we continue to build that into our church, that in those prayer huddles, that there's naming going on, that there's hurts and real things, and joys and victories as well, of course, um, but also getting real and the safer environment of those twos and threes and the breakouts in prayer. Um, Part of that is that we learn to name what we're walking through with each other, and part of that opens up humanity to one another and becoming real and authentic uh, beyond sort of performing and hiding that the world has trained us so well in doing. One example of a common trigger I want to give before we go into the try harder problem uh, is this idea of a critical attitude. As I've been in church for some years, I've realized that there are, many of us have this double anointing to use Christianese language here of the gift of criticism. We feel that it's a gift. By the way, nowhere in the New Testament or Old Testament will you find the gift of criticism. I challenge you to find it. At best, there's discernment, but discernment is meant to build up, not tear down. <laughs> But criticism of others is so deeply rooted in our daily lifestyle. In fact, some of us have been trained that we get our identity from judgment through comparison. Instead of comparing ourselves to God's matchless grace and love in Jesus Christ, we compare ourselves to the person next to us or down the street, Christian or not. The critical spirit is an idol. It's something where we get our identity, again, through that judgment instead of who Jesus says we are. It's this sly little idol that sets us up to think ourselves as God we, you know, we're, we're allies of God in our criticism, but we're not actually. We're actually trying to take God's place. And so we turn them into judgments. And consumer culture in our secular world does it too in terms of who has the best program, who has the shiniest show, who has the best product, who has the most authenticity packaged in the best way for us to experience that. And we get our identity through these constant comparisons and judgments. And I would like to say that I'm perfect and I have arrived on this, uh, but I have not. Just check with my children and my wife. They can verify that. For any of you who think I'm on a pedestal, just take me down and put Jesus back there because Jesus belongs on the pedestal. I am a servant of the kingdom and of the king, but don't confuse the servant with the king. Amen? Oh, come on. Say amen. (laughs) It's just us on this beautifully dark Vancouver Sunday. So ask things, for example, with a critical attitude. If you are ready to judge and condemn and create an idol of comparison, 
you can begin by recognizing what are these triggers in your life. Ask people close to you, for example, if you're following on the outline, some of this is written down, uh, where do I have a critical attitude? When do I uh, sort of, well, we joke about lose our mind, which probably isn't a good thing to joke about, but when do you sort of, you, 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 you're worked up emotionally beyond what is rationally uh, makes sense in the occasion? Or ask others, when have I criticized you? Keep a journal of examples, perhaps, where you have been critical even today. You may have driven up to the church and thought, oh, look at that grass. There's too many weeds in there. These people don't love their neighbors. If you were in suburban, uh, some so- suburbs, that is exactly what people would say if the church has grass that doesn't or, or doesn't have proper plantings. That, or depending on how environmentally friendly we are, uh, uh, you know, proper like uh, deserty uh, plantings, you know, non-water plantings. Oh, look at that. They're watering their grass. Oh, killing the planet. Criticism. And maybe coming into this house this morning, the usher didn't smile at you, or, the, or, or you came in this morning, and, and I don't know what it is, but think about those things that trigger that. Begin to journal. How often do you go to judgment and criticism? Why keep a journal of negative things, you may say, because part of overcoming is to become aware of what's going on inside of you, to name it, and also you begin to see how your emotions have impacts on others as well. Why do I want to learn that my emotions are a dashboard but they're not necessarily always telling the full truth to me, but they're definitely telling me something that I need to know and be aware of. And then be aware of how my emotional state affects others. You know you're entering into leadership when you care about how your emotional state affects others. And none of us is perfect in that, but we become aware of that. Ask yourself, what has triggered this, triggered this critical reaction in my heart? Have I been wounded by this person? Am I projecting stuff from someone else on this situation? Is it my insecurity And if I point out others' flaws, it makes me feel better about myself. That's the idol of judgment, by the way. Oh, look at you. Well, at least I'm not like that person over there. I am, thank you, Lord. Jesus told a parable. Two men went into the temple to pray. One raised his hands towards heaven, and he said, oh, thank you, God, that I'm not like this this guy over here, (laughs) this publican, this tax collector, this sympathizer with the Roman Empire, and he's there on his knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. One said, Lord, thank you that I'm not him over there. Identity out of judgment versus who God is. Identity out of recognizing, naming my sinfulness, and I'm in process. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, which one of those two do you think went home justified before God by their prayers? So often, aren't we? The, oh, God, thank you that we're not like those. Oh, Lord, help those Mennonite brethren people down the street. I mean, their theology, dear Lord... Or, or, our, or our Hindu neighbor, or our Sikh neighbor, or our atheist neighbor. I mean, of course we need to draw proper comparisons about that, but we don't get our identity out of that. It's not, it shouldn't be the thing that drives us, right? Jesus' revelation should be that. Maybe it's selfishness. I want what they have. Maybe it's my standard of perfection for others. If you're not perfect, you deserve to be criticized. And that's not to say that we should not... It was a fine line between saying we do need to make observations and we do need to talk about uh, behaviors and we need to make calls in that sense of judgment. But when it flips over into this worth thing, that I'm actually doing that not to bless or to improve, and I'm not doing it in the right sort of, Paul says, speaking the truth in love. If you just are speaking the truth, but there is no context of relationship in the body of Christ, you're missing something crucial in this issue and criticism. Are we speaking the truth in relationship? Do we are for each other? And is it mutual? 
Are we submitted one to another, Paul says as well. If not, there is no gift to just blast somebody away with truth. In fact, truth becomes diabolically evil because it's divorced from the capital T truth, Jesus, who reveals fully who God is. Once you divorce it from that, justice becomes a weapon. Truth becomes a weapon. And this is important to understand with critical attitudes. I think it's why the church often in North America has messed up because we've been quick to point the finger and forgetting as the old childhood saying says, remember, there's three fingers pointing back at you, how you engage. So we overcome critical attitudes by naming them and then we begin to move into this replacement. But how do we go into change? Do we just try harder? Do we just, well, you ought to, you need to, you got to, you're supposed to, you better. And we use these words for sure. But without actually asking a deeper question about how do we truly change, behavior modification will only get us so far. At the end of the day, uh, acting like you're more loving versus becoming more loving is the crucial thing we have to wrestle with. I can act more loving, but if something in my nature isn't shifting, I can sustain that only so long, and in fact, it becomes drudgery. And I just want to say, oh, I'm glad I'm away from people. I just, you know, I just, I don't want to love it. I don't want to care anymore. I just want to, I hope that's one of your cars, but okay. Uh, but moving into that. So I think we wrestle with how do we go into that from this acting to becoming and being. The try harder solution is popular because it seems commonsensical. Well, I just need to schedule things better and I just need to, and some of that is helpful, but you, if you just do that without going where we're going to talk about today, it will often fail you. Try harder works for a season. Willpower does play a role in becoming, overcoming behavioral issues in our life, but it doesn't change the fundamental all the way down deep parts that Jesus has come to transform. Willpower alone cannot turn an unloving person into a loving person or a depressed person into a joyful person. Try harder can sometimes give us short-term results, but what we need to ask is how do we experience deeper change in our lives? And I believe that Christianity and Jesus brings us an answer to how we are changed deeply within beyond simply behavior modification. So we want to unpack that this morning. Paul says in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-controlled. We can act that way, but if we want to actually become that, we simply, simply can't will our way there. We simply can't by force of behavior do that. So how do we grow? To quote from one pastor theologian, says this, it happens when we learn to cease our striving and learn to rest in Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us by His grace, as we rest in the love and joy and peace and patience of Christ towards us, the Holy Spirit makes God's love real to us. We become more Christ-like. We become more loving and joyful and peaceful and patient. As we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 through 4, 6 speaks of this. We learn how to position ourselves in the path and source of Jesus' life, his truth about us. The secret that we see in Scripture is this. When we receive Christ and say yes to him, he indwells us by his spirit. He indwells us by his spirit. 
And so it's becoming what you already are because of what Jesus has done. The real issue that goes beyond behavior modification is learning to become what he is already doing within you and seeing that the other things that go against that and even sinful behaviors are really lies that we're believing, confronting lies about who you really are. I'm going to just unpack that a little more. Are you still with me this morning? It's so quiet. So quiet. Ina, are you awake? You're making eye contact. She's with me. Okay. She might be on her phone. She might be with, you know, any Oh, and by the way, I didn't even point this out today, but Andreas and Ari is here with the baby for the first time at Pilgrim. And the baby is fully asleep, and the baby, right? <laughs> so anyway, say hi to, to him before you go to today. So let's dig in a little deeper here. Being versus acting. The Bible does command us these things, like to be joyful, to be patient, loving, etc. But the key is not seeing yourself as not possessing those attributes as things uh, that we are not right now, but rather think about it this way. God's Spirit is living within you, working with your spirit. You are already those things, but when you believe lies about yourself, you act otherwise. Do you hear me? Try harder assumes that you're not those things, but what if you shift your, your perspective and you begin to believe that when we receive Christ, His Spirit has come into our spirit and He has brought His character inside of each one of you here this morning. And when we say, like Luther did, I'm a saint and sinner in process, uh, really, in fact, we are, have his spirit working within us, and it's more about the in process as being free from the lie of the world's way of thinking, the world's way of making identity out of judgment, the world's process, the, as Paul says in Romans 12 too, uh, by the pattern of the world. We need to break out of the matrix of the pattern of the world, and the power is inside of you already, and it's becoming aware of how to break free from the lies. Try harder assumes that you're not those things, but if you shift your perspective and say, in Christ, I am all of these things. So the real battle is living a lie about who you are, your true, truest identity. Christianity says that in Jesus, with his spirit living within you, there is the truest and deepest reality of who you are versus all of the identities of the world and behaviors that we experience and live out sometimes. In Romans 6, Paul says this, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin? And sin is all of those broken things that make for humans less flourishing. To use more modern language, I guess. He says, do we remain in sin so that God's grace may increase? He says, absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So when you receive Christ... We die with him. We enter into his death on the cross, and we now receive that as gift. So you've died to sin, still live in it. Or do you not know that as many were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he's saying that when you receive Christ, there's something going on in your spirit and in your body where his death counts towards the destruction of the sinful parts of us that lean towards human uh, brokenness and sin. In verse 4, when we have been buried with him through baptism into death, when we receive him, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, you too might live a new life, both now and in the world to come, he means. 
He says this, just hang with me a little longer here. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will also be united in the likeness of his resurrection, new life. We know that our old person, whoa, pretty old for puberty, but uh, we know that, (laughs) we know that our, oh, GC, now you come alive, all right. For now we know that our old man, our old fleshly nature was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For someone who has died who has been freed from sin. So what Paul's saying here is that when we receive Christ and the Spirit of God dwells within us, we are no longer to be bound by the matrix of the world, by the pattern of the world. In fact, we have been broken out of it. We have been awakened. We took the pill that woke us up, if you watch the rest of that scene, when we receive Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Uh, Verse 9, we know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is never going to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. So death in Christ, sort of the forerunner of what can happen to all people. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then Paul brings it back around saying, so you, now how does this apply to us? So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its desires. And he goes on and talks about how we are already dead to sin. So the issue is deception. The issue is we believe lies about ourselves. We believe lies about the world. We believe lies about God. We believe lies about our identity. On the basis of this, we are to not let sin exercise dominion. The brokenness, the things that keep us away from flourishing. Get to the last part here. Colossians reinforces this. This is a theme that happens over and over again. As one put it this way, the commands of Scripture, and this is in your outline as well, are not given to motivate believers to try harder to become something you aren't already. Rather, the commands of Scripture flow naturally from the proclamations about the believer in Christ's true identity, the deepest part about who you are. What we are to become in our behavior is rooted in who you already are in Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to simply display in your life the truth of who you already and truly are in Christ. Try harder is trying to get a new identity rather than making the new identity the means to the new behaviors. It's like the cart and the horse. When you begin to realize who you are in Christ, you now have that power to not live out lies and destructive behavior any longer. Shaping our desires and practices get us in touch with new reality. Some people ask, well, why don't we just do teaching and preaching? Why do we worship? Why do we do these prayers? What is this doing? It's helping us get in touch with the truest part of our identity as rooted in Jesus. It's helping us being caught up into the kingdom that's breaking in and is already working within us. The problem is not first and foremost our behaviors, as try harder assumes. The fundamental problem is you don't see and experience yourselves as you truly are, your true identity in Jesus Christ. There's another line that comes up in movies from time to time, and it's this. There'll usually be some sage character talking to some young Padawan, young learner. And there'll be a moment, in the, in the, in, and it's, so, it's such a trope, it's a common thing, but it's so important because it gets to the same point. 
And the person will have struggled. They may have come out of a rough family situation or, or a work situation or, or, they're, or they just completely like just seem lost. Or sometimes they're not even awake. They're not even aware. They're just a little bit of a gnawing that something's right. And then the sage character will come to the person in the movie and he will say something like this. Who are you? And the person will usually give some answer. Well, I'm, I'm a middle-aged person working in Vancouver Yes, 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 but no, who are you? And they usually give some other answer, and usually do it threes, four times, just for the effect, you know, because we all like threes. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a pew refinisher. I get paid tens of thousands of dollars to take off old fabric and build pew cushions. If I'm building a church, well, 100000 for those pews. These are expensive pieces of furniture to refurbish, by the way. You will hear that story again with numbers. No, 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 no. But who are you? Or depending on the sage character, it may be, that is not who you are. Who are you? (laughs) They stole that from Jesus. There's a fundamental thing about your identity. Figuring out that you were created for more And the question that I ask you this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, have you embraced your deepest identity? Who are you? And I want to tell you this. For anyone who is in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under condemnation and shame and your identity from condemnation and shame, Romans 8.1. When you are in Jesus Christ, His wisdom becomes part of your wisdom. You have been made right with God. You are holy and you are blameless because of Jesus' spirit dwelling within you. You have become the the forerunner of future humanity in Jesus. This is who you are. If you are in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Do not believe the lie anymore. Who are you in Christ? Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, Well, I'm this identity, or we talked about nationalities and ethnicity. Paul says, no, you're not Jew nor Gentile. You're not slave nor free. You're not even to be identified primarily by your gender, male or female, or whatever we want to say in modern culture. In fact, your core identity is you are one in Christ with a family of God. Who are you? The old self is dead. You are completely forgiven. You are made new. You are indwelled by the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul says this to the Corinthians. You are the living temple of God. Look at your neighbor and say, you're a walking temple. Come on, look at your neighbor. Tell him you're a walking temple. Does that begin to change to think about these behaviors that you may be wrestling with? That the motivation and the power is within you as his Spirit dwells within you. You have been redeemed and set free from the curse of the law. He says this, you have been seated in spiritual realms, in heavenly places, and you have an eternal inheritance. We'll talk more about it next Sunday in 1 Peter, hope. You've been hidden in Christ, united with Christ. God the Father redefines your state of being. In the world systems, we are made by judgment and consumerism and tribalism and comparison. We are children of wrath and violence and destruction. But in Christ, we have been given a new identity of people who are peacemakers because of what Jesus is and is done and empowers by his spirit. 
This is the truest true. This is the realest real. This is the truth that goes all the way down. When you are in Jesus, when you trust Jesus, whatever other identity you inherited, experiences, cultures that tell us that may or may not agree with this, this is the truest truth. So genuine growth comes first and foremost from the Holy Spirit making our true identity real to us, overcoming, liberating from the self-identity we inherit from so many things from the pattern of the world. Well, this morning I do need to wrap this. But, 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 we don't consistently live this way. We don't consistently live this way. This is true. Paul says, I often do what I don't want to do, but the grace of God, he goes back to, but it's not my true identity and I can name it. There are patterns that we have to unlearn. God doesn't destroy our memories and our past habits or past associations. He seeks to transform this and transformation does take time. Trying harder on behavior without working on identity will constantly frustrate your spiritual journey. But if we learn to work on identity and those things that help us become in touch with that, that's how we experience change. In two weeks, we'll talk more about specific practices, or not two weeks, I think three weeks. Whenever I'm on again with this message, it's First Peter next Sunday, we'll be going into practices. But the first, this, this piece is so important to ask those questions, who you truly are. Paul says, our struggle is to believe and experience truth of who you are against the lies and the patterns of the world. Identity is the core struggle of discipleship. Again and again, reminding ourselves and leaning into that. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. So what are the takeaways? Takeaways are this. I'll invite the worship team to come on up as I just summarize the takeaways this morning. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, who are you? If you need to say it in sage voice, whether that's loud sage voice or quiet sage voice, go for it. Look at your neighbor and say, who are you? Look at them with a puzzled look on their face. Who are you? This is important. So the takeaways again, there is a pattern and a warfare in the world that wants to keep us blind and bound to a false identity. Trying harder doesn't work because it doesn't go to the root lies that we tell ourselves and our culture reinforces. So exposing those is, is really step one. The second takeaway this morning is this. In Christ, you have been given a new identity, and the Spirit of God is at work within you. That is great good news. This try harder stuff will only get us so far. In fact, behaviors need to follow the sense of identity and reinforce our new identity. And the third thing I just want you to remember is that you are called to cooperate with this new work of God in your lives to break free of a life based on lies. We want to explore how do we move into those experiences more? What does the worship of the church do? What do daily practices do? How do we rest in Christ? How do we invite Christ into painful memories and experiences and let him bring his healing and remind us and bring the identity that he has given us into those things that have shaped us in the past? I want to explore that in the last two messages in this series some more. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you, and then we want to sing our way out today. I hope uh, maybe with friends or family later, you will look them in the eye and ask them the question, who are you? Who are you? Who truly are you? 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, well, there's any number of things you could respond to that. I am a child of the king. I am beloved. I am forgiven. I am set free. His, his rightness, his flourishing, his, use the good old church language, his righteousness, his holiness, they dwell within me. I am righteous because of Christ. When you're acting out in ways according to the lie instead of according to who you truly are, maybe you need to tell your brothers and sisters or friends saying, you're not acting like you really are. This is not who you are. That's such a more powerful statement than saying change your behavior. That may be implied in it, but the deeper question is, or statement is, this is not who you really are when we're being destructive, we're being critical, judgmental, when we're flat out committing sins that Scripture names. This is not who you really are. You are made for more, and there's more inside of you. Come alive in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for my spiritual family gathered here today. And some of us have been trying harder and trying harder and trying harder, and we keep hitting a wall. And in this case, the way we come through the wall is to remember our deepest sense of identity. And if someone's here this morning and they have not said, Jesus, I want you to come and dwell in me by your spirit, by faith, because he's not going to coerce you to do this. He's not going to force you to believe God does that, it's game over time for all of the universe. But he's going to say, give you enough splinters in your mind. Do you want to know the truth? You begin by wrestling with Jesus' life and teachings or take that step of say, Jesus, come and live within me today. Set me free from the lies of the world's pattern that I might become more alive and then help others flourish in you to be set free from the bondages of sin and death, brokenness, destructiveness. You can just pray that in your own mind today. You can ask me or one of the elders to pray with you or anybody you see doing something today. And so, Lord, send us out from this place aware that this place would be a place where people get on the journey of breaking free from the lies of the world's system of thinking, that we might be a blessing to those around us for their good and for our good but we have to have a new identity, a new perspective on ourselves. So may this be a place of great freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you will say amen, amen. Amen. Let's sing together this morning as we continue to shape our lives around Jesus.